first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherload. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. My name is Rich Freeland. Uh, I've been making music and doing other music and sound related things for the last like 15 years under the name Disasterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, from New York City originally live in Los Angeles, done a lot of work in games, done a couple of film scores, um, I've done some software, I've done some cartoons, um, done a little bit of everything. So it's kind of been my, my jam. It's kind of like being a novelty seeker, basically, seeking out different kinds of things. I mean, so, yeah. right up front, dude, I've been a fan of yours since for like as long as I can really remember, at least since I was in high school. And Mm, the first game that I played of yours was a Fez. And I still like when I'm studying or just trying to like chill out, I still put on that soundtrack all the time. And it's just kind of, I don't know, kind of embedded in my heart a little bit. I just love that soundtrack. I love that game period. And uh, cool. (laughs) And then, you know, I didn't really think too much of it at that time. I wasn't so into like who made things and I didn't really know too much about, you know, who you were, what you were doing. And then a couple years later, it follows comes out and yeah, you know, I was just like, Oh, like who did this fucking soundtrack to this? And then I realized there was this connection between all these things that I liked. And then it was like, uh, you know, hyperlight drifter after that <laughs> and then so on and so forth. And it's yeah, really a moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, man, like there's, there's a link somewhere in here, but <laughs> I, I guess the, the, the way to kind of get into this is like, what, what made you like really want to start, um, into music i've read you know all the shit online like you know i think your dad was uh, your church music director if i remember correctly yeah my uh my stepfather growing up <clears throat> um mm-hmm. so yeah i mean since i was young i was always into creating stuff and initially it was mostly visual art kind of stuff um i used to <laughs> when i go to a relative's house i the first thing i do is go to the computer and start mm-hmm. messing around <laughs> And so I have I have a lot of fond memories of like stupid stuff like uh, loading up like Microsoft Word templates for like this various business activities and like putting my own name into it and like coming up with logos and you know the Freeland Corporation or something. And I was like six years old, yeah. um, so that was kind of where it started for me. And I think a little bit of that was was definitely well, a lot of it was influenced by my parents. Um, uh, specifically my, my mom and my stepfather who, uh, you know, I, uh, lived with, uh, my mom is a graphic designer for a long time and, uh, worked at a printing press and my stepfather was very creative. Um, did lots of different things, photography, write poetry, music. So, uh, yeah, I kind of just, I don't know. I, 
saw saw that and kind of picked up the bug. Um, and I didn't really get into music until like earnestly. I didn't really get into it until later. There was a lot of music going on in my family. Like my, you know, my, my stepfather was music director at the church that we went to. My mom was involved with that. My sister uh, was always singing uh, and coming up with stuff uh, since she was very little. So, you know, th- there wasn't a lot of maybe sonic real estate in my household growing up. So I spent a lot of my time just kind of locked up in my room, um, making stuff. And, uh, I didn't really get into music until like actually playing it so much until I was a teenager until I was in high school and I started playing guitar. So that's kind of like the, the early, the early years. So what was like the, the moment when you're, you decided I need to go pick up that guitar and start playing? Well, it was kind of like graduated over time because uh, I think I got like a toy guitar at one point, maybe when I was like 10 or 11 years old. One of those guitars that uh, has like a built-in amplifier and um, it has like built-in distortion and stuff. It was a right-handed guitar and I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm not really, I, I don't know, I, I don't, I think people who are ambidextrous can do things with the same thing with both hands. I, I can't really, but I do a lot of things with my left hand. And, uh, playing guitar was not comfortable. I used to play it like a lap steel guitar as like a 10 year old. <laughs> it's just, and I would just like play, I would just kind of just play, uh, I think I would just play like open, you know, open, open chords or something. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And, uh, that didn't really go anywhere though. I mean, I didn't really do anything with that. Uh, I got into, uh, this thing on online called e-wrestling, uh, in the, in like the late nineties, early two thousands, which was like competitive fan fiction wrestling. You come that up with your own character. Right up my alley. <laughs> it was super fun. It was super yeah. fun and very, very macho activity. Uh, in, in at least, you know, in theory, uh, lots of like trash talking and, uh, but lots of like making artwork, making artwork for other people. I, I, I kind of like started a little, it was like a little like hustle basically as a teenager where I was making logos and websites for other kids, uh, entrance music. And so I kind of started messing with like audio software just to do like, take a song I like, maybe it has like a riff or something like intro. And I just like loop that part. Uh, and I started to develop like, you know, just, I guess some of the skills that you would need to be a freelancer because I was basically freelancing, even though it was, you know, not really a a professional environment or whatever. But, uh, a lot of those, a lot of those things kind of carried over uh, either indirectly in the sense that like, you know, I was developing kind of this freelance experience of doing work for people and being creative and that kind of thing, getting paid, but, or, or more directly in the sense that like, I actually, uh, got my first video game, like prod, like project directly from, uh, being involved with e-wrestling. Uh, so it was like a really strange kind of uh, trajectory that I, that I took to get into, uh, to get into music, writing music for stuff. Really, really weird. <laughs> so like that required you to compose entrance music, I guess, for other people and everything. Um, well, no. So I, I didn't actually, um, <clears throat> I didn't actually write music for wrestling stuff ever okay. really. But what happened was um, there, someone had, po- someone who worked at a, a mobile game company, I guess posted like a wanted, you know, wanted ad on a message board looking for music for some like, really old school, like pre smartphone era, like cell phone games. And, uh, uh, someone who ran in the same circles kind of 
you know, connected me to it. I must've been like 18 or 19. And I had basically stopped participating in e-wrestling at that point, but I still kind of like, I hovered around a little bit and I would like post music there. Um, and, uh, he was like, Oh, you should, you know, here, check this out. There's people looking for music. They're looking for MIDI, like MIDI files, which is like literally what I was doing at that time. Cause I didn't really have any production chops. Like I had just kind of started messing with the computer and doing music. So I found a piece of software that let me do guitar tablature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had like MIDI. So you could like, you could, I could like write down my guitar parts that I came up with, but then I could also like flush them out with other instruments. Um, and then you could save it as a MIDI file. So that's like, that's pretty much everything that I was doing at that time. And so it, it's, it was like a kind of a serendipitous opportunity. And I reached out to them and I like sent them a bunch of MIDI files. And then maybe like five months later or something crazy, they're like, yeah, let's, uh, let's work on some stuff. And, uh, so I got to work on a couple of games just doing MIDI files. So I was doing like music. I did music for like a, a, a licensed, um, game show game for like really crappy cell phone, like, uh, the, the, the game presser luck, which is like, a it's where that very meme, I think, well, maybe not. I, th- I thought maybe the, do, 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 well, I think that might be from, um, it might that, that might be from Price is Right, but I, I'm pretty I work, sure that I was right to say, like, I'm pretty sure that's the Price is Right, man. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I got to work on that. So I did some like covers of like Press Your Luck game show music. And then I did like I did a bunch of stuff for a zombie game that never got made. Um, they had me do a bunch of like sound effects using jet like MIDI files, which is really weird. But that's kind of where I guess the technology was at that time. So um, basically I got to do a bunch of stuff. There was basically no oversight. I got paid. They, they didn't really use any of the things I did. Like one of the games they even shipped without any music at all. So I, I don't really know why, like it didn't really work out, but I got paid and I was like, Oh, I guess this is like a, this is like a possibility for me. So, um, that's actually one of my albums, Limeade Grin. It's just a collection of like souped up MIDI files that I wrote for a, for like a puzzle game called Wasabi, uh, that, that got released without any music, like, like right at the end of the pre-smartphone era age. Um, so that's kind of where I started with doing soundtracks and stuff, but I was already writing music at that point, like just for fun. So so let's actually like back the horse up across the Creek again. Uh, How did you end up in, as an enthusiast of e-wrestling in the first place? Like, how does one go down that path? <laughs> yeah, I mean, wrestling was really popular uh, when I was in high school and, uh, and middle like school. like the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, the, so the, attitude, Steve Austin, the, the attitude era, yeah, basically like the golden era of, of re- professional wrestling. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, my dad had uh, wrestling pay-per-view tapes on VHS, and uh, I used to watch them uh, a lot. He had like, you know, 88... SummerSlam 88 and like uh, Royal Rumble 89, like stuff like that. So um, it was like, you know, Bret Hart and it was like early, early Undertaker, like early 90s and Hulk Hogan, Shawn Michaels, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I always liked it. So and, and then and when I was a teenager, I got really into it because uh, it was something that I could share with my friends. Um, it was like a culturally, um, acceptable 
form of soap opera <laughs> for, for like teenage boys. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know. There's there's actually a lot of like, there's a lot of depth to it and a lot of like human psychology in it that I, that was really interesting, I think, just looking looking back at it now. Yeah, I mean, I uh, you don't know this, but I grew up in Alabama and wrestling is huge there. Still is like much bigger in the Southeast than it is in, you know, most places in North America, I would for say. Sure, yeah. And... I like when I got out of high school, went straight into like, I wanted to be a wrestler and trained to do it and did it for a couple of years before I decided like, eh, probably not a great way to make money. Um, oh, wow. Cool. Interesting. But <laughs> yeah, I've long time. Like I, I, my middle name is Kane and I was convinced that my mom named me after Kane, <laughs> even though it's spelled completely different and everything. Like, that would uh, be a weird thing to be <laughs> named after. Yeah. But <clears throat> I actually, interviewed uh, mike herman who did uh, retromania wrestling it's, it's his game that's out right now and mm. to get to talk a lot about just kind of the psychology and everything of wrestling in that podcast but i agree with you it's like even though it's so stupid and so silly and everything it is truly like just the best window into the zeitgeist of what people are thinking at the time and yeah especially mm-hmm. during the 90s that, that was a very special area uh or era i should say in the yeah the whole story era. the whole story of that whole era is really fascinating just with the wcw and how things were a certain way for a long time and then everybody started getting into this like basically this like uh this war of um who can be more like over the top and like violent <laughs> like pushing the envelope <laughs> yeah there's a great vice <clears throat> documentary about uh brian pillman that came out like last week or whatever. And I watched it, but it's, you know, like the point where he just starts exposing the business live on TV and then he pulls out a gun and all that. He was just crazy maniac, essentially. I mean, yeah. in character. Um, but yeah, totally changed the industry. Like people like him at that and the Montreal screw job were like the nails in the coffin of kayfabe. Yeah. And yeah. Are you, are you following AEW these days or just a little bit? Like I, I haven't been watching it like, uh, you know, like every week or whatever, but every once in a while I'll pop in and see what's going on. So I, you know, it's, you, you got to check out this uh, blood and guts match they had a few weeks ago. So uh, essentially it is a war games match and it's like Chris Jericho's team versus uh, Maxwell Jacob Freeman's team. Epic, uh-huh. like really, really great. Like if you, if you hearken back to that crazy violent, you know, super over the top wrestling from, mm. from that era, I think that they're really trying to pursue that and get back to that. I think what I liked, I mean, I, I think I, I gravitated more to the, like the, the storylines and the, the sort of like, just the, the kind of psychological warfare mm-hmm. from a, like the wrestling standpoint. I always really liked the technical wrestling. Um, Me too. That's yeah, the kind of wrestler I wanted to be was like Benoit. Was always, like, always, yeah. Always liked Bret Hart and the mm-hmm. wrestling of Benoit and uh, people like that. Yeah. So, so you're such a fan of this that you decided like, hell, I'm just going to go on the net and you found this place where you could write your own stories, which is kind of what you're saying about, you know, you were interested in the psychology of it. Um, yeah, I think actually, I think, so this is my guess on how I, how I got into this. Um, some friends in school were doing fantasy basketball uh, and fantasy. This was like fantasy football. Like all that stuff was like starting to, I guess, pick up like mm-hmm. late nineties. Cause I was, st- I was still, I was still pretty young when I was doing that. I think I was in middle school and I I must've just like searched for fantasy wrestling or something and be like, Oh, this is actually a thing. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how, and then I just kind of like got into it. Do you think that maybe, 
you have an ability to kind of like tap in and understand emotion because in your music, at least you're really good. And you talked about this in a, one of the, I don't remember what panel it was. I watched a video where you talked on a panel one mm. time and you mentioned like how, you know, we're really into creating emotion and everything, which is what music essentially to me is. But yeah. do you think that you have an ability to kind of tap into that? That's not common. Yes, for okay. sure. Yeah. I, I would say that, uh, that's kind of my, um, that's like the thing that I'm really good at is just, uh, um, identifying emotions. Um, like I have, I think I have a pretty good, I have a pretty good sense of people mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I kind of find myself like falling into like psych, uh, like psychologist mode sometimes with people because I'm very, I don't know. I just, uh, feel like I can kind of pick up on what people are putting out there. And, uh, I've never been like good at, never been a great storyteller or anything like that, but I find that I can kind of like, yeah, there's something about like emotions that I can kind of channel. And like, actually for me, like the, the most effective and like cathartic way for me to actually like, to like process emotions is playing the piano. Like I just sit down and start playing, like I'll play in like C major and just like, I'll just figure it out. Like it'll, it'll just like come out of me. So, um, and that's not always the case when I play mu- make music. I mean, sometimes it can be very, you know, it could be a little bit more intellectual or whatever, but it's just a sort of like a base process for me. It, it's, uh, you know, I have a very, um, I guess, very uh, tightly, like, connected kind of relationship to it as far as how I, like, the way that I'm able to kind of kind of channel things to some degree. Yeah, it makes me wonder. Like, there's almost an an empath quality to it, in, in that yep. it, with music, especially, but in, you know, really any art, the the idea is to create an emotion in someone. And if you hit the nail on the head, which you know, for most of your catalog, I think I've listened to all of it at this point. That's really an achievement. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> but but like, if someone comes to you, like a, a potential, you know, collaborator. And they say like, I really want to capture this kind of emotion or like get to this. Like, and they probably, you know, they're not a musician most of the time. So they're just going to say like, uh, this is what I kind of want. And yeah. you have to, as an, as the musician, figure out what that means to them and then create it, make it into what they want it to be. And yeah, there's gotta be something to that. You know, you can't quantify genius, yeah. but. Well, I think, I think that um, actually that process is not always so em- empathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it tends to, it tends to, in my experience, um, the disagreements tend to come from matters of taste and matters of taste don't really have, a, they don't really have much to do with like how someone's feeling. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's like a different, it's like a different skill, I think, than kind of the skill that I feel like is one of the things that just intuitively, like I, I have, I have a kind of like a affinity for, which is being able to like understand people like emotionally. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think that's to say that it may be, I I don't know how much of a benefit it has uh, in, in like actually figuring people out, but maybe it definitely like helps me in the sense that people can hear that in my music and that they gravitate towards it. And so it makes it a little easier to find people to work with. Um, I mean, everyone's a critic, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. You very clearly have 
successfully, at least to a, a good chunk of people that have heard your stuff, they hear it and the intended reaction happens. Like, you know, this song should make you feel a little bit hesitant to go around that corner in the game or mm-hmm. whatever. The, and, and if you successfully invoke that emotion, then I guess it works uh, regardless yeah. of what their taste is. Yeah. It's also interesting because, you know, even if you are like hyper tuned into that kind of thing, you are dealing in um, kind of a, you know, like a, like a cultural cachet. It's kind of like, what is the, like, you know, what are the cultural like landmarks for different kinds of sounds? Like, you know, like how are you going to reach the widest audience or whatever? Like you're, you're kind of dealing in um, like cultural language, like when you're, when you're writing music uh, yeah. and you know, depending, I guess that's not always going to line up with, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> I think, I think that's why like working in genres has been like kind of a, like a, it's been good for me. Uh, um, it's nice to have, sometimes it's nice to have like a, like a template that you can follow and you're like, okay, here's the language that's kind of been established and I can kind of work within that framework and kind of try to bring my own perspective to this while still honoring the language that exists, like whether it's, you know, for like, you know, like horror film noir or whatever. It's, it's interesting how kind of what, what you're going at there. When you talk about the different cultural aspects of it. Yeah. So for instance, like, red the color red can invoke a completely different emotion in different people based on what their culture is like in our kind of culture it could mean like blood it could mean love or whatever it could mean something totally different in like east asia but you know i don't see any situation where you play the key of d minor and it doesn't have that kind of like heart stopping like oh this is like a somber thing And, and i feel like that might be I don't know if it's evolutionarily older or just more mm. cross-cultural or what, but yeah. I mean, here's my take on that. So mm-hmm. I think um, based on what I know and what I've read and what I've seen other people talk about with uh, keys and keys being associated with different emotions, there seems to be a lot of disagreement <laughs> about that. Like people have different, there's some that are like fairly, I, I think, I think the reason that some are fairly common, like the, the, the consensus, there's like almost a pretty, there's a pretty, like a lot of people agree that like C major is like, has sort of like a, a simple, like plain kind of feeling to it. And I think a lot of it actually just has to do with our, um, uh, you know, our experiences mm-hmm. auditorily, like what we've heard and, and how, what, you know, what we associate, because a lot of times, you know, like, most people don't have perfect pitch, but you know, I think subconsciously if you listen to a lot of music and you hear a chord, you just hear, you know, D minor or whatever, you know, that might evoke not just the chord, not just the, uh, the, the key, but also the, the instrument that it's played on, you know, that, that might evoke like a certain, you know, memory of a certain song because the link between music and memory is so strong. Um, so I actually, I, I kind of, gravitate towards that idea. Um, I definitely like there, there was like a, I was visiting a friend and they had an article on their fridge that was just like a list of like emotional descriptors for all the different keys. And I, I kind of like, I took a picture of it and I went home and I like tried to come up with my own and, and then I like compared them and it was like, like maybe half of them were similar 
and then the half were like totally different. And then I, I even tried to play in the style, like with the adjectives in mind that they had thought of, like, I don't know, C sharp minor is jubilant or something that that's a terrible example, but I would try to like, you know, evoke, evoke that and I couldn't do it. So, um, I think, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting kind of thought experiment, but I feel like it's, it's very personal. Um, I think. You have to do some kind of weird BF Skinner experiment where you take a baby and you just like play really somber, sad music and teach them that that means happy. Like you're like, Oh look, it's a clown, but with like Beethoven's fifth playing or something. Yeah. (laughs) Something that's supposed to invoke something (laughs) bad. And then just, and they'll go the rest of their life thinking that's, Oh, that's happy music. And then I don't know, you play like, you'd have to, uh, you'd have to isolate them basically from, from like everything else. Because I, I, I mean, I really do, think that there is a certain I mean there is certainly a tradition a musical tradition and there's a certain there's a certain rationality to it as far as like you know the role of fifths and fourths and thirds and all this kind of stuff but there are you know there have been other cultures at different times that have different kind of sensibilities about different intervals so it's obviously not there's some level of arbitrariness I think to it to get back to you know, like, talking about the nostalgia factor and the fact that you kind of have these tropes that are almost uh, programmed into us through the media that we've consumed throughout our lives and everything. Like for a great example would be like in it follows, you very clearly have like a, a reference to psycho yep. uh, soundtrack in that music. And, but when people hear that, like that, that, that they immediately think serial killer chasing me. Like there's mm-hmm. no getting around that programming. Yeah. Um, even if they've never seen psycho, it's just like so uh, pervasive mm-hmm. in the world at this point, you can't right. get away from it. Yeah. And that's why it was a touchstone for me because, um, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't have much of a, a background in, in horror as a genre, like the genre, as far as certainly not writing like very, like a couple of cues here and there for different projects. I had to do something scary, but for the most part, not really like in that direct line and definitely not a student of horror films by any stretch of the imagination. Like, partially just because I, I don't really like, I've never really liked watching things that are kind of really dark and don't have any silver lining. Um, so I, you know, Sounds like you had a happy childhood, man. <laughs> I think it, well, yeah, it was pretty okay. I, I think part of it was just that I, it, it would, it would not sit well with me. Like I remember I, I saw Jurassic Park when I was like maybe six or seven years old and I had nightmares about dinosaurs. So, you know, I, I wasn't a, uh, I wasn't like a very tough kid when it came to that kind of stuff. Like I didn't want to go. Undertaker on... was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was not scary. That's different. But like the snow white ride at Disneyland, like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Dark places, <laughs> witches, like not too much for me. Uh, so I kind of, kind of kept me away from it for a long time. Um, you know, I was always more into like, I don't know, like emo kind of stuff, like happy emo stuff. Like I got really into Ghibli and, you know, when I was like, when I was like starting college, like I was obsessed with like Amelie and shit like that. So that was kind of my headspace. Um, so everything I knew about horror was basically just cultural touchstones that most people would know, like pop culture. And the psycho theme to me is like, it's, it's hit that level of pop culture where people just know it because it's so, it's basically like a meme, you know, cause it's just so ingrained. So I, th- I'm not even sure that I was intentionally trying to do that i mean i i think uh, i remember when i was making that the first track for the for it follows and it has that theme in it mm-hmm. i was thinking about it, it, it the the sound actually reminded me of the, this alarm clock that i had 
like one of those like um one of those like led like ro- uh, radio shack alarm clocks from like the 90s i don't know if you remember them they had this horrible sound that's like that's what my phone makes that noise when i wake up like, does oh, it goodness. yeah yeah it's my mom had one when i was a kid and that's like wake the, little, the fuck up <laughs> the little white cube you know what i'm talking about exactly yeah yeah, yeah exactly so that's kind of what it reminded me of. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I used to have dreams about that because I'd still be sleeping and like in REM or whatever. And uh, I'd be, I'd, I'd be hearing my alarm going off and I'd be like, I can't try to like find where the, the alarm clock is and I can't find it in my dream. And I'm like unplugging stuff and I'm like going right. slowly going crazy until I wake up. But that pattern means urgent urgency move. <laughs> like, yes, now's exactly. The time. Yeah. yeah. Get so out there's of some- your comfort zone. So it makes sense that there's some kind of connection there between that and, you know, the psycho theme <laughs> and the dissonance of it. It's just so dissonant. Yeah. So I'm assuming you were seeing kind of scenes from the film and everything as you were working on that. And you had an idea of like, okay, for this scene, I need to invoke kind of this thing. Um, so what were some of the other, there's not just like straight up horror, but the other things that you were trying to capture, you know, in that film in particular. Mm. So, yeah. Um, there's definitely a duality to that score. I mean, there's the, there's kind of the straight up, just like go crazy, make it scary. Um, mm. And I was also experimenting with mimicking some of the, some of the cues. Like there was, there was a bunch of Elliot Torek stuff in there from Christoph Penderecki. Um, mm. And I was trying to like come up with Elliot Torek processes for synthesizers. So like things like having, you know, like a bunch of, bunch of pitches and then they like slowly that, di- you know, they slowly diverge and get really dissonant and like all these different kind of processes like that. But the other half of it was like the more character driven moments. Um, and the intention with those was to make them more melodic. Uh, and there was this sort of conversation that was happening between me and David, like, like an abstract conversation in the sense that he brought me in in part because of the music I wrote for Fez. And mm-hmm. so, and he tempted a bunch of, the score, the, the movie with music from Fez. And so I was kind of competing with that in some, in some level and like trying to honor. I would love to see the cut of that. It was super weird. The first time that I, that I saw it, I was like, this is such a weird choice uh, because I just was so used to, you know, hearing that music in the context I wrote it for. And it falls is totally different, but you know, it was like, uh, it was like the puzzle music when he's, mm. when they're driving and it's like, you know, the, the death cue, which is actually for the title of it follows, which is the, you know, if you listen to the death cue and if you listen to the title, it follows they're pretty similar. Um, they're even more, it's even more obvious if you check out disasters for piano. Yep. Um, I just listening to that before you go. Yeah, they sound like, they sound like sibling tracks. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was a pretty weird, uh, that was very strange, uh, experience. Um, but there was a lot of great music in the temp score that I didn't know. And so it was really fun to be inspired by all that music. I mean, it was kind of my first ex- exposure, like John Carpenter and Penderecki and people like that. Dude, I can't imagine not knowing John Carpenter at this point. He's so awesome. Yeah. I got, I, I haven't, I hadn't seen any of his movies and then I saw, um, the thing a couple of years ago and that very quickly became one of my favorite movies. <laughs> it's so good. I think he's done the, his own soundtrack to everything with the exception of the mist, uh, which I believe was any American. Yeah. Uh, which is also amazing. It's any American, but 
yeah, it's it's kind of strange because you, and you had up to this point been working a little bit in you know film animation that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. did you like was this was it a totally new experience to kind of work on a feature film at that point or yeah what it, what adjustments did you have to make and what did you learn from before that you carried to that? Yeah, good point. I mean, it's there's there's definitely um, there are definitely connections. Uh, mm-hmm. to things I'd done before because I'd done some short films. Um, I had done a lot of cut scenes and games and that kind of thing. So I knew how to like score to linear footage. Like that was not unfamiliar to me, but um, the whole workflow is totally different and the culture is different. The timelines are different. So the sense, the sense of how things go, just the whole thing just feels very different. And then getting to go to the sound stage and while they mix the movie, like that's all different. Um, so in a way it was like the perfect amount of challenge that project. Um, and part of it was just by necessity because the initial, uh, the initial intention was to have like half a year to, to work on it. And then we only had a couple of weeks because we, um, pushed to get into the Cannes film festival, which we, which we did. Um, but I had to, I had to write, you know, so it means I had to write in the style that I could actually do that in, which was just pure synthesizers basically and and effects. So, um, I was basically working like 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week for like three or four weeks to, to get that finished. Um, but, uh, it went pretty, pretty smoothly. There weren't too many, there weren't too many hiccups in that process. So it was pretty cool. There's another presentation that I saw you do where you spent some time, talking about how you especially in games the music should be sort of dynamic and not just hearing the same things over and over again um mm. in such a way that and i can't really explain this the way that you can but you i guess you can do that if you want to but making the experience sort of in the moment like it, it will never happen again you'll never really hear exactly what you just heard or experience the same thing you just felt again um and mm. with film, that's kind of totally out the window. And I think if I remember correctly, you're already starting to think that way, or at least publicly saying that stuff mm. around the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So with a film or TV show or whatever, it's it's just going to be the same thing every time you see it or hear it. But yeah. with uh, with your games, you've done a lot more intricate and beautiful designs, I think. Um, what Can you walk us through that idea a little bit before yeah, we get Yeah, I mean, it? I think the way you phrase it is really interesting because – um, there's a distinction there where in the sense that you, you give somebody the same material that's, you know, pre-recorded or whatever, and they listen to it, it's the same thing every time. Um, they, they, it kind of requires a different, it, I guess it sort of like triggers different synapses in your brain or something because you're, you're interpreting that every time and you, you may interpret it differently, even though it's the same thing, like reading a book like a right. bunch of times. And every time you read it, it's different. With games, it's like, you know, there's this opportunity to not only um, every time you play the game, it's it's different in your interpretation, but it's literally different <laughs> every time you play. Like the actual material is different, so you know that can be that can be really powerful. It can also be like a major pitfall, uh, like a logistical nightmare uh, that you can kind of get yourself caught up in because you're trying to be really clever and come up with cool ideas. And sometimes things are really cool uh, in theory, but in practice, nobody can even tell the difference. So you kind of have to pick and choose your battles. Um, So that's been, those have been lessons that have been very hard, hard earned for me over the years because I've definitely, I mean, I've, 
all the things that failed, like I learned a lot about like the things that work, don't work. Um, it, it definitely elevated my chops as far as like, you know, doing more technical things, doing technical sound design, implementation, you know, coding, all that kind of stuff kind of got, got mega boosts just from trying to build all this wacky stuff. So it's, it's a totally different vibe because you're really getting into um, systems design and like all this like very heady shit that, uh, you know, is not necessarily, I mean, you can do that on a film, but you don't really need to. Um, you might be overcome. I mean, in, in either medium, you, you may be overcomplicating things, but there are opportunities in games to do things like that, that where it actually makes sense and it actually benefits the project. I mean, I, I think... I think that way about the work that I've done for Dinosaur Polo Club. Um, we made two games, Mini Metro, Mini Motorways. And mm-hmm. the way those games are, they're puzzle games, basically. They're simulation games where you're, they're kind of like a abstraction of, you know, building a subway system or building a road system. And they're just very, they just felt like very good candidates for a, a more procedural system where you try to find the sweet spot where, you know, it's different every time, but there's still like a character. There's still a, there's still a sandbox that you're working within and the sandbox isn't so big that it's basically just chaos noise. Like it's, you know, that's sort of the challenge sometimes with these systems is that the probabilities, like the possibility space of them can be so enormous that it's hard to, hard to wrangle. Uh, and you know, there've been projects like that where, you know, this, some systems that I built for things just ended up being just uh, unwieldy, like just too hard to, to, to work on because you had to account for all these edge cases and things. And um, so things can get really complicated really quickly, but you can do really interesting stuff that you can't do uh, as easily. Um, or, or you can actually do it in the actual playback, right? It can actually be different every time in playback. I mean, you can use these processes like in making music for films, but you still, at the end of the day, like, unless it's like, I don't know, what was that? Like Bandersnatch, like Black Mirror episode or something. Like for the most part, it's going to be printed one way and that's just going to be that way. So. um. One of the other things that you kind of touched on and that I believe it was the same video I was watching, but you, you were talking about how prior to the 20th century or late 19th century, there wasn't really any recording, you know, like every time you heard of music, it was live. And yeah. even if it was written music, like composed and played by a symphony, the symphony is not going to play it the same every time. And it could be a totally different symphony or band or guitar player or whatever. The air in the room could be different. Um, yeah. And until we had recording, so, you know, technology, no one had ever just heard the same thing twice like that. Um, and now that's the number one way that people consume music. I mean, especially this past year, <laughs> but um, yeah. what does that mean to you? Like as a, a shift in the way that people consume music? That's a deep cut. I mean, I, I gave a yeah. very short talk about that, like uh, maybe nine, 10, 10 years ago. Um, it was, yeah. It was a it was long like time ago. Permanence. Uh, versus impermanence kind of, kind of talk about, about how music used to be very impermanent and, and kind of like gets etched into your memory and it lives in your memory. Um, where now it, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of, uh, um, I guess, uh, reinforced by the ability to just turn it on again and listen to the same recording. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think in general, you know, there's been like kind of a shift um, towards a more of like like a like a collection culture, like people collecting uh, these types of things. Um, um, but but also, I, I it does seem like that's there's there's a human nature element to that. So um, I think it's just you know, obviously, like reaching a new medium, reaching music has had kind of a profound effect on on that. Um, I do think that it's something that's overlooked. It's a really powerful thing that you can do. Um, it's interesting actually, cause I guess it's been coming up in like apps recently, like the last couple of years, people have started to do like, you know, like Snapchat and all that kind of stuff. They started like messing with having imper- like, uh, impermanent recordings and that kind of stuff. It's definitely like psychologically a very different kind of, uh, experience, when you know that something is, is a fleeting thing and it's, you're not going to, you know, it's, you know, it's not going to be captured and replayable or whatever, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely things have flipped because there was a time when, you know, it was like 95% impermanence. And then, you know, there were like wax cylinders or whatever. And, you know, people doing really nerdy, weird stuff on paper that you could like, I don't know, run a, like those old ribbon recordings on greeting cards or something, you know, whatever crazy technology, like phonograms or whatever weird technology they had back then. And that was really novel. And now it's the opposite. Now it's like, Oh, pre-recorded music is like, that's just the way we ingest and, you know, interface with music now and, you know, go into a show or, well, especially last year or so, but, uh, you know, like, uh, there's just been, yeah, a big shift. I don't know. I don't know, like, I haven't really thought about it a lot. I don't know. I don't know what it means. I, I do think actually that there, there has been a little bit of a devaluing of music because it's just so proliferated and like available to people. People kind of take it for granted. I think, um, I think that's true with all media and, uh, people are kind of like burnt out and kind of over overburdened with information. And, uh, you know, it's really important to I think prioritize your time and your energy and you have like limited and you have like a limited capacity, I think, to take in information and to like put out to like your inputs and outputs, like what you make or do and, you know, what you receive. So all that stuff, I think, has become increasingly um, prevalent and important just because of, you know, the technology and everything. Um, and, you know, I think music is a part of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know all of world history, but at least in European and probably to some extent, North American history. Let's go back a thousand years. Music was considered like holy. Like this yeah. is not. You don't walk around every day. There's no radio. There's no you know fucking iPod in your ear. There's no, there, none of this was going on. You didn't just hear music all the time, unless you were singing or humming or like making a beat. Or mm-hmm. so when you walked into like I don't know, let's say a tavern in medieval times, and there was a singer there with a guitar or whatever, and they were playing music and, and bards were kind of the history keepers too. They were t- singing songs about yeah. things that happened and that's how they kept all that alive. And that's what kind of allowed them to keep it in their <laughs> memories because there's a pattern to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes deep, you know, and it's really cool. They're like really walk- deeply. Yeah. In there. Sort of like walking, uh, they're like, uh, walking like a legendarium, like that, you know, mm-hmm. they had all the, they had all the, the stories of the culture and stories from other, other places and all of that got, you know, 
got obfuscated by transmission or whatever, uh, which is just the way the way it is, you know, in, in all, all forms of storytelling, not just not just spoken word, but written word, too. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, like, the, I guess the religious texts at that time and everything getting like kind of transliterated in different ways over time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely like had a played a very like uh played a different sort of role uh and and that sort of role is kind of been you know dramatically lessened um but that power i think still exists within music and uh you know it's maybe to our disservice to to not take advantage of that to like you know embed it into what we do We'll never have that again. I just, it's one of those things that I wish people, as you said, it's been music has sort of been all art has really been devalued in the past 30 years, just like specifically because of the internet and because of availability. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I want more people to be able to put their art out there if they can create it and make it kick ass. You probably wouldn't be here otherwise, or or else you'd be, you know, making some sort of strange music on a, on a weird, your slide guitar, yeah, it's a mixed pro. It's a mixed problem yeah. set. I mean, there's definitely yeah. positives and negatives that have come from out of it. Yeah, and th- but then somebody's only experience with disaster piece with Rich Vreeland might have just been, you know, oh, I walked into the tavern and there was this crazy guy doing weird <laughs> stuff, like, and, and it was beautiful, and like you had to be there. You know, you I think that's there. I think that's why I try to keep a somewhat low profile. I think actually I like that. Uh, I like yeah. that element of that that has has largely gone away because everything is about like turning yourself into like a personal like you know billboard that's always in people's faces all the time and like everybody thinks that they know you and you know that's just kind of the way things are now and uh there's something really cool about like you know making your stuff and you know just letting it have a life of its own and not always being like not always uh being the one out there like you know pawning it like personally, you know, like all the time, like finding, finding other ways to like contribute basically that aren't so, um, demystifying. Like there's a, I think there's a difference between that and like, uh, I think there's a way to do that without making people, um, think of you in this sort of like unrealistic way of like being like a, I think people sometimes, you know, if they don't, uh, they really like something. They don't know the person or whatever. They can kind of like, can kind of over, overemphasize it or like you know put it on a, some kind of pedestal kind of thing. But I think there's a way to do both. Like, I, and that's kind of what I tried to do is like, be, be personable but not be like, mm, um, but not be front and center and like, mm-hmm. like I you know just just try to make it about the work and not about me, basically. Yeah, it's, I, can. I think you've done a good job because I mean, obviously like I could just go say your name and name, name drop. I had disaster piece on the podcast and it was epic. And there's a very small subset of people who are going to respond to that. But to those few people who do, it's like, Oh my God, like really? That's so amazing. I'm such a huge <laughs> fan. It's, there's no like in between. There's no, there's yeah, no like discussion. Right. Like, you know, I liked his early stuff, but like he really sold out after the, it followed yeah, it's either like, Oh, that's awesome. Or who's that? Yeah. <laughs> there's no in between. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that has been and, my experience too. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. Like I I told a friend uh, before we sat down here. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna interview that guy, and he's just like it, the same friend I mentioned earlier. Who I played Fez. He play, he showed me it follows. We saw that movie in the theaters together, 
And then now we both know all of your shit because we're like, oh, that's like a can. It's it's almost like part of our friendship, not solely, but you know, <laughs> that's one of those joint experiences that we had. That it's like a mini cult, but us. there's no uh, there's no leader. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the leader well, the leader went out to lunch permanently. Or <laughs> that's really. You cool. imagine like if a cult formed around you that you were never aware of. I mean, this probably happened to a lot of what we now call religious figures. Is, you know, Jesus has been dead for a long time, but there's a lot of people who are just kind of like acting on his behalf. I hope it doesn't get to that point with you, but uh, unless you want it to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I don't <laughs> think I, I don't think that would be a really weird cult. <laughs> there's plenty of problems in the world and life that, that you could prioritize over, you know, how to, I don't know, how to make, how to make a sweet tune or whatever. Well, let, let's say that, uh, a meteor strikes the earth and destroys everything. And the few people who survive are scouring for stuff. And the only thing they find from the, the history that happened before them is like a recording of something you did. And they would think this is really important. Like this is our only connection to our, our forefathers and they, it could happen. You don't know. Like it's happened so many times. Who knows if Beowulf was actually important, right? It's just, they found it. It's that's what it exists yeah yeah that is a good point yeah i guess the context really matters and it, it is really weird to think about that sort of thing specifically you think about all the books that have been burned over over the centuries and stuff all the all the knowledge that's been lost um it's obvious that there was a certain like like the the knowledge level of humanity like got pretty got pretty sophisticated and high before everything kind of went to shit um yeah. you know with uh kind of the, the the downfall of the empires and uh, the burning of library Alexandria and all that kind of stuff. Um, Alexandria is a great example. I mean, the Atlantis, who knows what they had there, if that even existed. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, who knows what happened with the pyramids? It could have been aliens. It could have been, like <laughs> <laughs> Not saying it was aliens, but it is pretty weird. And that's something that you guys kind of like, Real, I think that's what hooked me on Fez was the playing with that without ever saying anything. And that's a really great trope of Hyperlight Drifter as well, this environmental storytelling. But it suggested all of these things like that in Fez where like, here's some yeah, right. weird ruins that look like pyramids and here's some alien looking shit, but we're not saying they're connected necessarily and really played with people's brains like that. And it's Yeah, that's true. I never thought about cool. that before, but yeah, there's definitely a connection there between those two games doing stuff like that. Kind of the... Uh, esoterica like you yeah. know you the environmental storytelling where there's like this kind of inexplicable stuff around you're like what you know what is the what is the story of this that's a very human uh, experience um you know just what are these crazy ruins <laughs> there's some really yeah. wild stuff on the planet uh you know beyond the the more more common stuff there's some really weird formations and giant structure man-made structures that are Maybe like one foot off the ground, but they're like, you know, a mile long or something. There's lots of weird stuff. And uh, yeah, it's hard to know. We kind of operate under the assumption that these big things were obviously, they required a lot of work and therefore must have been really important to a less sophisticated, technologically speaking group of people. Right. So like Stonehenge could have just as easily been like, I don't know, let's throw some rocks together, man. It'll look pretty, you know, like a little work of art thing. But then people have spent forever trying to figure out what does it mean? 
Um, and then, you know, now we kind of get this idea that it was to measure the solstices or, you know, that it's kind like of sundial, deal. right? Some kind of sundial. Yeah. So like, a, but more than a sundial, the same thing kind of exists with the pyramids. Like they're, they're cut in these ways that allow like, and only at a certain time of year, will it line up with this hole to shine light on this area. Yeah. And that seems like this super mystical thing, but it, w- what we do know is that the measurement of time was extremely important to people and the ceremonies around that were, you know, like, uh, right. The so the solar um sorry the summer solstice the winter solstice yeah. the autumnal equinox all yeah, a lot all of the, the Mesoamerican around. people had stuff like that too like yeah very like very specifically tailored towards tracking the stars and stuff like that or it was aliens one of the two <laughs> <laughs> all right so a couple of people wrote in uh, supporters of the show so. First of all, Uncle Had uh, would like to, first of all, let you know that Hyperlight Drifter is his favorite soundtrack ever. Um, but he he wants to know, <laughs> is there is there any song, and I would probably say a piece of work that you've done at, at any point that you feel doesn't really get the love that it deserves or um, is mm. something that's special to you that you feel like didn't really make it into the limelight, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best work that I've done was for games that didn't really um, get much uh, visibility or get played mm-hmm. too much, or, you know, maybe just weren't as popular or people didn't like as much. Um, I wrote some music for a game called crunch mm-hmm. with a K um, that I'm really proud of. I think is really cool. It's kind of like, um, you know, when I was starting, I did a lot of like very prog rock, like metal kind of inspired chiptune stuff. And then I didn't really do a whole lot of that for a couple of years. And then I did this project um, and I kind of got to like revisit um, that style. And uh, that was really fun. Um, there's a couple others. There's like, uh, there's this really small game that uh, came out shortly before I started working on Fez called Fomaze. Um, that uh, is like an all FM soundtrack it's the only i think it's the only fm soundtrack i've ever done really as far as like that being a concept or something so it kind of has a a certain sound that's like kind of like a high high fidelity version of like a like a 90s sound card like an opl3 or something like that um and uh the floor is jelly is another one that i that i really like um, i did all the music and all the sound effects for that game um and uh yeah, that one just never really, never really caught on. But I think it's a really good game too. It's really fun, uh, interesting game. So those are a couple. It's an interesting part of, like the the sort of collaborative process that you do. I mean, you're making soundtracks to things, mm-hmm. and so the likelihood of someone you know hearing it and having that attachment to it very much depends on how successful the project as a whole is, not just how good your work was on it. Yeah, I think when I when I realized that. Um, definitely became a small con- contributor to the choices I would make as far as what to work on. Yeah. Um, but it also, I also realized how much value there was in it as far as trying to develop a career um, to, to kind of w- try to work on things that were going to have a wide audience. Cause that, that meant that you were basically getting a ton of built in marketing and stuff. For, for your work for free. Um, so without doing any marketing basically at all, I was very fortunate to basically 
get my music out to millions of people. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I definitely, that's definitely one of the, the coolest things about working on soundtracks. Um, and, uh, it's definitely served me, like served me well over the years. Yeah. I mean, you never know when you work on something small, who are going to, who those few subset of people are going to be who did hear it or did hear it, like play it. I mean, when you made Fez, you probably didn't expect that, you know, uh, later in your life, a, a movie director was going to approach you because they really liked that soundtrack and put you in. There. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't even have any plans to work on movies. So was, the whole thing was a surprise. Yeah. Opportunities at every door. I, I try to keep very similar philosophy with kind of how I do the show like, you know, for every guest. That's like a, you know, a you or Cliff Blazitsky or something like that. There's always going to be a bunch of indie people that probably no one, but <laughs> me and mm-hmm. those people have ever heard of. And I always think in the back of my mind, like, yeah, this isn't going to get the most clicks and downloads. And I don't really care that much about that, but I don't know where they're going to be in 10 years. You know, like I, I might've done a small favor for someone when they're working on their first project and then they could come back and be like, Hey man, I'm making this big kick-ass awesome thing. That's going to have a million, million people that care about it. And I want you to do the first interview. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't expect that, but like it could happen. And that's why it's, I mean, yeah, that is sort of like a, benefit of just being kind of open and willing to talk to different people. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, I don't think you want to bank on that because uh, it's probably not a great mindset to have, but just, right. you know, it, it, it tends to work itself out if you show up, like, and if you're just, you're just honest and open, you talk to different people and in the long run, it'll, it'll, it'll be, it'll be good. Great. Um, we got another question from Mike Schmidt. He is a game developer and he's working on a game called Star Explorers. He also created a uh, software called Anomalies and it's a procedural music generator, uh, which cool. he actually uses to score many of his games. And his question is uh, basically, have you ever experimented with procedural music and you know, what do you kind of think of it as a whole? Oh, have I ever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have, I have a, I mean, I don't know if he's, like, I don't know the, the, the definition that he's thinking of, but, um, just like broadly speaking, I definitely have done a lot of procedural stuff with music. Um, my first, my only quote unquote game project that I've ever like done myself is this, this, this little, this little project called January, um, which was a, uh, something that, uh, I made to teach myself how to make a game. And, mm-hmm. uh, it turned into this little music tool. Um, where you walk around and lick snowflakes and it uses Markov chains to uh, generate music. But uh, I didn't know what Markov chains were at the time. I just, you know, someone told me that one day and I was like, I looked it up and I was like, yeah, that is what it is. I just kind of, I don't know. I just thought, you know, you look a snowflake, it generates a note. Okay, cool. And then you look another one. Okay. What, what do you do now? Like how did, so I was like, okay, based on what the previous note was, we'll either pick this note or that note. And just based on that concept, kind of the whole thing came at, came together. Um, and over time I kind of added all these other features to it and, you know, you can export what you make with the little character. You can export it into like a MIDI file. You could use it to make music. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the work that I did for mini Metro and mini motorways came out of that project directly because they saw that and they were like, yeah, we were looking for somebody who we think like a procedural soundtrack would be good for this project. Um, and, uh, so they hit me up and I was like, yes, I, this is like a dream project. And I agree. I think it would be cool. Um, 
I've, I've definitely done a lot of procedural type stuff just for fun on the side, uh, experimenting with tools. Um, some of which I probably release at some point. Um, so it's something that I'm interested in. Um, I try to avoid like getting too deep into the weeds with it. I just try to find like the sweet spot, you know, where it's, um, yeah, where, like I, like I was saying before, where it's things don't get too unwieldy because it, it can get very complicated very quickly. Yeah. In his case, I think what he would do is kind of let it just go nuts and like play all sorts of different things. And then he would just listen to it and he would hear something like, Whoa, that, that matters to my project. Like I could take that and expand upon it to make the soundtrack, not just a procedural song, stamp it into the game or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But That's a great way to use it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for creative uh, inspiration, the, the, the tools are not always like a lot of the stuff that I've been making to, to, that does like generative music type stuff. Mm-hmm. You can dial in parameters and, and that sort of thing, but it's not always going to be super useful in context. Like, oh, I need a, you know, I need to start a track or whatever, uh, and I'm going to use this to like actually write. Like, it's not always super useful for that, but for creative inspiration, it can be really useful. Um, and you can, you know, obviously sample it and pull out ideas. And I think that's one of the coolest uh, use cases for that kind of stuff. So I know that you really highly experimental in general uh, with the, the ways that you approach music. And I can see your, I don't know what that is behind you, but this whiteboard with all sorts of different shit drawn yeah. all over it. I have another one uh, over here yeah. for something I'm working on right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been so, getting, I've been getting into software lately, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you're getting into software, but like, what is your, I, I'm trying to get a glimpse into like how your mind approaches a project. So when you see a, yeah. uh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like what's the first thing and then how does it expand and end mm. up on this whiteboard? And then how does that come to the finish? So product? this whiteboard is like, it's basically all the stuff I'm working on. Um, mm. And uh, you know, it's uh, like, I, I like to, I like, I rec- like the last year or two, I started using whiteboards cause mm. I've, I needed a, I just needed a better solution. I think for, something that I was staring at me every day and like kept me honest. And I, you know, I wasn't getting like sidetracked because I get sidetracked pretty easily. Cause I'm kind of like, um, I'm very fluid and kind of like get, get, get off track doing things that don't matter. So it's just to try to help me. Um, so I, that's sort of like my bird's eye view of like the things that matter that I'm trying to do like projects mostly, or like responsibilities that are ongoing that are work. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll put stuff on there when I'm, I've decided that it's something I really want to do and I'll take stuff off when it's done or when I decide I'm not going to, you know, I, it's not, I'm not going to hold space for it anymore. Even if it's like, it might even be something that's like, um, I'm still working on sometimes it's all just like, it's all psychological. Um, like I still know I need to do it, but this is like, I just want to dedicate my work, working headspace to certain things and not others, even if they're things that I'm actually doing. Um, uh, and some of them are projects that have been ongoing for years because they started as hobby projects when I was really busy doing commissions. And one of the things, uh, one of the things that I've been really focusing on lately is just getting like prioritizing my self-directed work and deprioritizing commissions and like external projects. Because for me at my stage in my career, I've been, 
you know, I've been working for other people and, and, uh, you know, realizing other people's creative visions for a really long time. And I've gotten a lot of, it's been great. Um, but it's not without certain pitfalls and I've put off a lot of my own kind of ideas and work that I want to do for a long time. So I think, you know, 15 years of doing things a certain way, it's, it's not really working. It doesn't really work for me anymore. And, uh, I just, uh, I'm at a stage where I want to, I, I want to take back more, like a little more agency and like can see, you know, see where that takes me. Um, so I have a lot of stuff that I'm kind of cooking right now. And, uh, it's been, um, it's been interesting so far. It's been a good learning experience and it's been, you know, it's been, uh, in, in a way it's like throwing myself back into the ocean because <laughs> when you do soundtracks for a while, also like I've gotten pretty fortunate with a couple of projects. And so I was able to kind of just coast for a while off the success of certain things. And, um, uh, it's a little, it's different. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm still really lucky and fortunate to have like kind of a, uh, an audience and stuff, but, um, you know, going branching out on my own is, is going to be very different than, um, you know, just kind of tying in with a movie or game project or whatever. Yeah. So let's start transitioning towards like kind of the past few years up to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what was the moment when you said, like you looked at Hyperlight and you said, yeah, like I'm doing that. Yeah. Um, my friend Roger, who I played, we played music together. He, mm-hmm. um, he was in, he was in the, the disaster piece band uh, <laughs> for a couple of years. Um, <laughs> he had a friend, this guy, Alex, who was the creative director of Heart Machine. And, uh, you know, he, um, I was, you know, I was his favorite musician. So he put us together and uh, he was making a game. And uh, he hadn't really done any games before, but he had a really interesting background and um, he had a re- lot of really interesting people working for him, uh, including Bo Blythe, who was someone who I really loved his work, uh, a game developer. So, um, and I liked the art style. Uh, yeah, it just, it felt like a good choice to, to dive into that as something that felt like a spiritual successor for me personally to Tefez that was mm-hmm. sufficiently different enough that I could grow and do different things and not just, you know, fall back on laurels and be kind of pigeonholed or, you know, whether that was an internal thing or externally, like I, it felt like the right opportunity, the right thing to, to try to, to do. And, you know, very early on the things that I tried that were just, they were just, um, bald reactions to the to the early footage of the game alex loved and it felt really good and uh that's kind of how that got going um and then it it sort of you know it evolved a lot over time it's a really long it was a pretty long project and i wasn't always on i was always uh you know there were times when i was working on other things for months at a time and i i changed a lot during that period because i was in my mid-20s um so it it you know, it got pretty hard to, to finish, but, um, you know, all things being said, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a highly, a highly worthwhile experience. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot of what the kind of mysticism about that game is, is essentially 
from what I can tell, it is a metaphor from Alex's perspective of the struggles he's had with his health. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of people really latched onto that story. I mean, it, it's just a kick-ass game on its own without that. Yeah. But I think for a lot of the publicism uh, that was a publicity that was going around, you know, with, uh, mm-hmm. was it PC Gamer? And they were really so- soaking that up. Like, this is such a beautiful um, way of yeah. this guy expressing himself. Yeah. And, so it was more than just like a game project. Like, did you kind of feel a duty in any way? Like th- this was so special. Like this is such a, an important thing to this person that I want to bring my game or. Um, I think probably. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think, I think getting to know him and uh, seeing that kind of, you know, show up in the, in the, in the project, I think that all contributed to my, um, and just, you know, liking him generally as a person, I think, you know, and, and being excited about, you know, uh, the people involved and getting to go to LA because I lived in the Bay area at the time, getting to go to mm-hmm. LA and hang out. Like all of it was, was cool. Um, it was just a good, you know, I, I tried to weigh everything and, and all of that definitely played into it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always want to do things that I feel like matter. And I think something so personal like that, like finding a way to take like a conventional genre, uh, pay tribute to, you know, the past to, to very like popular touchstones like Zelda and stuff, but also to make it really personal, I think was like really cool. Um, and that, that all helped me in, uh, you know, in my creative process for sure. There's a fantastic video. I'll probably try to put this one in the, in the notes and people should check it out, but it's you and, uh, Akash Thacker, uh, doing this really cool panel where you're talking about, all of the sound design and the different experimental processes that you went through to make this thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, th- that was just really interesting. And you kind of got into how you did a completely different approach to making <laughs> that soundtrack in particular. You know, you had like these, th- these weird kind of scaling factors that you were taking like, okay, this is going to be a pattern that we use a lot. And then uh, I'm probably doing a shit job of explaining it, but it was so interesting to just kind of get in the head of two guys like you that do what you did. And you guys were like friends, if I remember correctly. Yeah. We were, project. yeah. we were buds in college. And then yeah. we didn't really, we didn't really talk much. And actually the, we, it's only been in the last year, basically since the pandemic that we've started like becoming good friends again, just like hanging mm-hmm. out online and stuff. And I'm actually going to visit him soon. So I'm looking forward to that. But, um, uh, yeah. Um, I think a lot of the experimentation on my side, I can't speak for Kosh, but I know he did some really interesting stuff with wire recorders and stuff like that. But on, on my his, side, his stethoscope microphone, stethoscope yeah. microphone. Yeah. yeah. On my side, like, uh, you know, I, I always, I've always tried to integrate um, alternate kind of approaches into my work and it doesn't, a lot of times it doesn't work out, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I think just trying it, um, you know, yields interesting results and just helps me with the process. I think that's why even though, you know, on many, many projects, when the first thing I do is sit down and I'll like sketch out stuff on the piano because it's low impact. It doesn't stress me out. I can just play and come up with ideas and it's kind of like therapy. And, uh, I almost never use the stuff that I come up with. Like I, I, I may like, like a lot of it I like a lot, but it just doesn't have a place. You know, it's just kind of a initial, like even before I'm sitting down to do any production or anything, I'm just like, you know, what are the, what are the emotions and stuff that I think can kind of work for this the colors, you know, what's going to work. 
And that as a process, it's not even about utility of the music. It's just the actual experience of, you know, letting that out somehow that's been very, very valuable. And it's to the point now where um, I have enough of those kind of sketches for different projects that I could almost make an album of just like, you know, uh, first, uh, first impressions or something. It's just like, of different, you know, like here's the first impression of it follows. And it's like a totally alternate, like theme song for it follows. And, and there's like a totally alternate theme song for Hyperlight drifter. Like I have, you know, I have a lot of these kind of things and that's just, uh, yeah, I mean, and I, I got really in, I got really obsessed with the idea on Hyperlight drifter of using music notation. Somehow I thought mm-hmm. that would like help me make the music more symphonic or something. Um, and that was like a total waste. Like it didn't work at all. Uh, I, I, but I did learn how much I hated music notation. So that was interesting. <laughs> um, I, but it, it helped me figure out that the style of music that I was trying to write, which was like six minute pieces of music that were through composed and had a lot of different pa- passages. Like it wasn't going to work for the game because the music needed to be more reactive than that. And it's just another case of me trying to be clever and do something new and, and inventive or whatever. And it, it's, it fails. And so you, or, you know, I would just go back to something that is tried and true and works um, and then find ways to tweak that, that support the game. And so that's what we did. Like it, it turned out that all it really needed was like pieces of music that are like 90 seconds long um, that loop. And then just, just do like, you know, 15 variations of that. And so that you can, you can paint, basically, you can paint the, the, the world and the context of different scenarios. Um, and that, in a way, it became a, th- a really clear through line for me to Fez, because I did something similar in Fez. Um, there's a lot of, you know, adding stuff, pulling stuff out, no music, ambience, a lot of ambience work. Uh, yeah. That like ambience was a really big part of Fez and it became a really big part of Hyperlight Drifter too. I remember you at some point saying how uh, I believe it was Thelonious Monk was talking about like the notes that you don't play are equally as important as the ones that you do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that empty space is like what makes it so cool. It, it's like, you know, if you're playing at full volume all the time and there's no point of silence or like rest, then you lose the effect of the big parts. Yeah. And I think you guys like knocked it out of the park as far as I'm concerned with that, especially with, both of those soundtracks and just in general, but uh, you could really just tell like the, how excited you guys were at the time talking about how, how much different experimentation you did and got to do with this thing. And that yeah. was actually like a tip that you were, you did like a little thing where you're like, Here, here's all these tips, you know, for people um, when you're hiring a, a sound designer or a musician or whatever. And, and one of them was, you know, have patience with people doing weird, crazy things in order to achieve <laughs> what what you want. Yeah. 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 That initial stage, it's gotta be that way. You gotta go yeah. into the desert and find, you know, bring back some weird fruit. Um, <laughs> but you don't, you, you know, you, you only have so much time to do that and that's, yeah, but you gotta do it. So. Yeah. For you, how important is that? Because do you, do you do well with the timeline of like, okay, we're shipping this bad boy on this day, or do you kind of need a lot of room to wiggle around and, and play with things? Um, I have sort of a complicated relationship with that. I mean, I, 
I even wrote a forward for a for a game audiobook called The Fruits of the Desert, which is basically about what you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. kind of the initial period of like you know doing weird stuff. Um, my experience has been that when you're involved early, if you're involved before the the project has an, has a clear identity, you have to you basically don't have a choice, uh, or or at least. To be fair, it's there's a personality component, perhaps like for me personally, um, if if I feel that the project has not developed a clear identity yet, I'm not going to feel comfortable trying to make what I would call like shippable or I don't know, like final like finalized structurally like music. Like I can't even really, I can't even really like get the the feel down right because my process is so detail or it's so like it's so detail oriented to the way things feel like the way the game feels is so important to how I work. And so if the game feel is like kind of up in the air, then I don't know what to do. So, you know, I'll probably do something else. Um, and, uh, that might, that might be on the same project like that, that had kind of been the case on, you know, solar ash. Cause that's a long-term project in the beginning. I was just doing like a lot of, um, experimentation with systems and sound design type stuff because it was still too early. I felt like to really kind of, you know, it's too early to lock down like a sound. Um, and you know, a game that is, has a really long development cycle may go through like multiple stages of identity and things changing and personnel changes and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it's been my experience that I do the, I tend to do the best work at the very end. Like, when the game is solid and it's like, Oh, okay. I know what this game is. I can come mm-hmm. in and I can like basically be the champion of this experience and, you know, really, really like bring out all the, the things that are, that need to be brought out. Um, it's really hard for me to do that when, you know, I'm trying to champion something that's not, not confident, like doesn't know what it is. Uh, so so there's that sort of like, there's that sort of dichotomy, like, and it's a pet peeve of mine personally to like write a bunch of music in the beginning of a project that just kind of gets like tossed. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, like I, I'll keep all that I'll, uh, contractually. I'll make sure that I can keep that and uh, use it for something else or something. But um, it's, <laughs> I recently did a film where I wrote like th- uh, one third of the music I wrote is in the movie and the other two thirds are not. And so yeah. there'll be like, you know, I don't know, three albums of music or something like in an ideal world, you don't have to do that. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, the fruit, you know, you, you benefit from the fruits of those labors, no matter what, I, I think if you can, if you can keep that, if you keep the work, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I try to be efficient about it if I can. I, I, that's what I prefer. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be the different types of people work in different ways, right? Like, so, um, Tolkien, right? Who was going to take as long as he needed to make the story <laughs> he wanted to make, you know, uh-huh. period. And then there's, you know, like a, a pulp writer who's, okay, uh, what do you want? Okay, how long? All right, and then they'll come back, deadline, ship. And mm-hmm. that's how they're, they they get that creative motivation through knowing yep. that they have a set limit. And I, I mean, I was kind of like that when I was in school. I had a teacher that would tell me like, you know, you know, some people need to do three or four drafts or whatever to get things right. And for me, I'm very much that like in the moment, do it now kind of person. And they said like, you know, you do your best work like the first time. And if you 
second guess yourself, oftentimes you get it wrong at that point, uh, which mm. is probably why podcasting is a good medium for me because there's no going back. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, every, I think every medium is different, has different, um, there are different things that maybe work better than others in certain mediums. Like, I mean, the difference between writing a, you know, a fantasy novel and um, writing a song is like, uh, you know, there's, there's some concrete differences that would, that would maybe, you know, cause certain people to gravitate more towards the kind of Tolkien esque like approach of, of writing something like a tome that's going to, you know, just get refined over time versus, you know, Lincoln park, uh, writing a hundred songs for their first album. You know what I mean? Like it's a different, it's a different beast, but I think also personality is, is a big part of it. And I think there are a million ways to do things. Um, not that long ago, I was listening to a podcast, um, where they're interviewing, uh, uh, Timothy Pressfield who wrote, um, the war of art, uh, which is like a really, really interesting book about creativity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. You're just talking about like, you know, you ask all these different people who make stuff, like how they go about things and they all have totally different ways of doing it. Um, you know, people who are like hardcore procrastinators, people who, like you said, you know, really were extremely precious with their work and it worked for them. And other people who were like the total opposite and like got up every day at the crack of dawn and like put on a suit and like wrote like, not like every day, like a, um, uh, there's a, there's a famous songwriter whose name I can't remember who did that. Um, so there's, I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. Um, it's really a, it's like a personal quest about figuring out like what, you know, what is going to work the best for you and, and allow you to be the most, um, effective. I see this a lot with game designers. They all have equally diverse ways about going about finishing their projects and some people are like well i've been working on this for 10 years and i don't see an end in sight and that can be frustrating because like yeah it, it is art first first and foremost it, it they're they're in charge of their own art but then people who It'd be frustrating for other people living, who are yeah. working working for them I've, yeah. I've been in that position before yeah <laughs> well, no that's cool like we're here to talk about you not not my stupid thoughts but to sum that up you're not stupid I've really enjoyed this, but please. Continue. <laughs> uh, some people like uh, my friend scumhead, who's a pr- really, really super indie game designer. He, d- he just turns out games like left and right. And they're all kick ass. Like they're short, really cool experiences. And that's how he works. And he can't have other people inhibiting that process. Yeah. And then, and then you have the other people who are, like I said, you know, they, they do these 10 year long game projects that never ship and then they never make any money and then they can't keep doing what they love. Right. Um, you know, yeah. it's such a balance. But there's also, I mean, if this is also like looking at these things in a vacuum to a certain sense, because we don't necessarily know that the way that they're actually working is how they would be working if they were doing things in the op, like an optimal way for exactly. themselves. Because, exactly you know, spending 10 years working on something and, you know, going broke, uh, that might not, that might not actually serve them. Uh, (laughs) uh, and, um, yeah, so it's kind of hard from the outside looking in. Um, it's a really, I I think that's part of why it's a really personal thing. And, you know, maybe someone like your friend, uh, you know, just, it's like a dispositional thing too. I mean, I, I, I know people like that and I have a little bit of that in me too, where I just, Mm -hmm. 
like I have friends who turned down. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I've turned down some pretty, pretty, pretty amazing projects, but I know people who turn down pretty much everything and they're, they, they're not super well known, but they just like, you know, I don't really care. Like I, I just want to do what I want to do. And I admire that so much you know, that you just, you just go for it. Um, and obviously you need certain, there are certain like, there's always complexity to these things and the decisions that people make and why they make them and why they can make them or can't make them. You know, obviously everyone is in a different situation. There might be like economic reasons. You might be, you know, you might have a family to raise or whatever. There's like a million different factors that go into all this stuff, but um, it's all super personal. Like it's just not, I don't think there's a cut and dry way to look at it. So at this point, I think we can say that you're a mainstay with heart machine and uh, last year we started to see the first <laughs> blossoming roots of what will be solar ash kingdom. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know how much you can or want to say at this point, but like, it looks amazing, you know, totally different kind of style in terms of, you know, it's a 3d game instead of being a 2d Zelda mm-hmm. game. But um, what are you working on? And like, what are you looking forward to about people seeing that project? It's a crazy project. Uh, it's been in development for a really long time. Um, I've done a lot of work on it uh, and a lot of it in, in areas that I haven't necessarily done before. So it's been a really educational experience for me. Um, I basically learned how to do 3D math type stuff, vec- like do vector manipulation and stuff on this game. It was pretty much the first three, like, like 3d environment game, like proper 3d environment game that I've worked on. And, and I spent a lot of time like coming up with systems, building systems, solving t- like really weird, interesting problems. So like as a learning experience, it's been huge. Uh, it's been so, so fascinating. Um, creatively, it's been really challenging. It's been a really challenging project. Um, and, and, uh, had a lot of help. We have a, you know, we have an audio team, um, uh, brought in, brought in a friend of mine and actually, um, kind of nominated him to take over the audio department because he's, I think he's a better, better personality and culture fit than I am. Um, Mm. I don't think I'm, I don't think I would make a good manager. (laughs) That's just not, not really in my DNA so much. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, um, am proud of, you know, the work that I've done on that project and, uh, um, the, you know, we have, uh, like I said, my, my friend and colleague troop, uh, troop Gamage, who's, who's been writing uh, most of the music actually. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, I think it's turning out really, really well. And it's been a really interesting experience to kind of, um, interface with something for such a long time and kind of figure out like how, how you fit, like what, you know, what, yeah, just what works, what works for you. Um, you know, certainly, you know, certainly I've, uh, I've written some music, uh, uh, in the, in the process to try to figure stuff out. But, um, uh, at this stage, it's looking like, uh, I might not like have many contributions in that space for the game. And that's okay. something that, you know, has been challenging at times for me, but, um, I think I'm mostly okay with it at this point. Uh, it, it hasn't been for a lack of trying. It just hasn't really felt right. And, uh, um, you know, it's every project is different and I'm a very different person now than I was, you know, when I worked on Hyperlight Drifter. Um, and I'm still really proud of the, you know, 
proud of what we're what we're doing and i think it's uh it's a really interesting game and uh hopefully it'll be out soon yeah i can't wait to see more man um before we get out of here is there anything that you want to kind of plug throw out there or a shout out to anyone in particular uh hey mom kind of, i don't know <laughs> hi mom she'll probably find this she, sometimes she finds me finds my videos yeah. uh uh sorry well, for cursing oh <laughs> she doesn't she'll be she doesn't mind um uh yeah so i you know i keep people who don't who maybe maybe aren't super familiar like i i keep a pretty robust blog and uh i don't really bother people unless i have something going on so i have a mailing list that you can sign up for if you want to hear about what I'm doing. Um, I've been building a bunch of music software. So that's kind of my headspace right now. Um, I am doing a little bit of soundtrack stuff. I have a film soundtrack that'll be coming out um, at some point. Uh, I don't know if it's been announced yet. I should probably, I probably should have looked into that before I came on here, but <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, that's, that's my deal. Uh, my website is disasterpiece.com and uh, yeah follow me cool, man. mailing us if you want to if you want to know what's going on you're uh you're welcome back on the show literally anytime you want uh would love to kind of touch base as as things go when you have new projects that come up yeah and everything we'll do I'd that love to come back it's been a pleasure song of the week is serpents from the soundtrack to crunch by disaster piece and uh fucking a man <laughs> this guy's amazing thank you so much to him for being a part of the show and giving me the chance to learn a bit from him and also hearing me out about stupid ancient alien bullshit uh, that was that was super fun and thank you to you for tuning in and listening if this is your first episode of in the keep um, there's a lot more in the backlog definitely head over to our website in the for those that are interested in supporting the show, it's just right there. The support tab is on the website. Got all sorts of different options and all that, but you know, hang around. Just uh, see how much you like it before you go diving down that rabbit hole. We'll also say thank you to all of our wonderful, wonderful supporters out there. So let's just give them a shout out right now. Paul, Moose, Dots, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes, Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred, Lord Revan, Tones, Igrak, Simon, and Morpher, Mike, Zan, Bridge, Ben, Donkey, Shannon, and the whole Flam fam. All of these people are absolutely incredible, and I can't thank you enough for what you've done for supporting the show. So anyway, that's going to be it for this episode. I love you. The Drowned Akatala loves you. Enjoy the rest of this song, and until next time, stay in the key.